In matters of religion, <clears throat> the issue of authority is foundational, basic. By what authority, one rightly asks, can I stand here week after week celebrating Unitarian Universalist values, urging of others their best, making moral claims, holding up something and asking aloud, is this worthy of our love? This morning, I am asking that question, by what authority? And I'll try to answer it. I choose today because over the course of the next nine or ten months, you will be engaged in an ancient and sacred practice, a collective spiritual practice, actually, culminating in the decision to call, or not, a minister. So it is worth thinking about. By what authority? In the Gospel of Mark, <clears throat> the oldest and closest to the source of the New Testament accounts, we read that shortly after his baptism, Jesus went to Caper Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who has authority and not as the scribes. In the ancient Near East, the word authority meant official power. To speak with authority was to speak by virtue of the property one owned or one's office. For an unofficial rabbi to speak with that kind of power was remarkable and compelling. Those of us in the business of delivering sermons are sensitive to this question of authority. It is necessary for finding one's voice and re-finding it on a regular basis. My first intern supervisor at the First Unitarian Church of San Francisco in the mid-1970s was David O. Rankin. In our tutorial, he outlined five sources of the minister authority. First, the academic authority conveyed by education. In the Protestant Reformation, reformers rejected the brocade robes, robes of Catholicism for simple black academic gowns, the Geneva robe. Unitarian Universalism embraces what is called the learned ministry. You cannot go to Bible college for a year and become licensed. You need a four-year college degree and a three- to four-year seminary degree. Studies include ethics, theology, the Jewish scriptures, the New Testament, church history, and much more. For most, this involves a serious financial expenditure. Second, there's the denominational authority convey, conveyed by acknowledged fellowship with other Unitarian Universalist ministers. Having a seminary education is only one of many requirements before one can be fellowship. Fellowship is in addition to earning a seminary degree pursued simultaneously and requiring that you be active in a Unitarian Universalist congregation, read about 100 books on Unitarian Universalism, intern for a year at one of our congregations, take a semester of clinical pastoral education, kind of a 
chaplaincy internship at a hospital, mental hospital, or a prison. Submit psychological test results, numerous essays, transcripts, criminal background check, and intern evaluations to two committees, interview with them, and get their imprimatur. A third source of the minister's authority is the authority of tradition, conveyed in many ways by the pulpit itself and its place in the ongoing worship life of the church. Children recognize this immediately, and it is part of what interests them about church and Sunday school that the minister is invited to sit on the chancel a few steps up and regularly address the membership, conveys authority, that she or he is traditionally given complete control over the design and leadership of Sunday services, the central activity of congregational life, that carries authority too. The minister, and children are fascinated by this, gets to play with all the bells and whistles and candles. We are ritual masters, and there's ancient authority in that as well. The flaming chalice, rotating art exhibits, banners celebrating our UU principles and the world's religions, pianos, skilled musicians, a choir, these things too constitute tradition. They add resonance, and resonance confers authority too. Then there is the authority of the community conveyed in the rite of ordination and in the call and installation of the minister by the congregation. This is close to the heart of it, being called. I had Leanne read the statistics regarding the wars of religion because I wanted you to all stop and think about what you were about to do when you vote on whether to call East Shore's sixth, sixth settled lead minister. In our day and age, it's easy to forget what Leanne read aloud earlier. Hundreds of thousands of people died in defense of this right to choose your own religious leaders. It was in 1619, so was that 410 years ago, that the King James Version of the Bible was published. And very quickly, a quarter of England's two million households owned that Bible. The most influential indictment of Pharisees, courtiers, and tyrants ever printed. Regarding the Bible, reading rather, the Bible was extremely popular. The readers were amazed at how much was in there that the Anglican bishops all appointed by the crown, never talked about. Meanwhile, the English and Scots and Irish were all killing each other. Thousands others were leaving the British Isles and setting up non-conforming separatist Puritan congregations in New England. Many of those churches are Unitarian Universalist today. The authority conveyed in ordination is hard, I think, for someone who has not worked for it to understand. The right to choose our own religious leaders was hard fought. I've heard church members in congregations I have served grumble 
about the rigmarole involved in gathering a search committee and voting for ministerial candidates, <clears throat> complaining that it was all much ado about very little. But let me assure you, there was a time. A fifth source of the minister's public authority is the authority of his or her personal faith as exemplified in their sense of vocation. This, of course, is the hardest to get a feel for via email and Zoom, not to mention a 10-day visit. Especially hard because it takes time for most of us in the ministry to find our voice, which sharing our faith requires. The universalist poet and patron saint of the beats, Charles Olson, writes about finding the middle voice and experience akin, I think, to what athletes describe as being in the zone, when they feel totally on and connected to source such that they can barely do anything wrong. Their timing is perfect. Their allusions to other things fall right in. To find the middle voice, writes Charles Olson, is to be in business, the business of telling the truth, of being thoroughly honest, more real than role, a vessel almost that the self, the Atman that is Brahman, the still small inner voice may come through. I've listed five sources of ministerial authority as though each was neatly differentiated from the rest, but they are all connected. Inner authority, the middle voice, must be confirmed by responses out in the community. You have to have that confirmation. If people do not agree to give you a chance at finding your voice and then support you through the sometimes bumpy efforts all ministers make to find and nurture it, hearing one's still small voice becomes all the harder and finding inner authority less and less secure. Every minister is different, of course, but I attended UU ministers' meetings only after I was ordained. Somehow the outer confirmation made it all much more real and gave me the chutzpah necessary to keep plumb, plumbing the depths and risk saying aloud what I felt in my heart of hearts was true. In the final analysis, a call to take up the ministry in a congregation is a call to enter a very intimate dialogue with the community reflecting their loves and fears, their dreams and illusions, loving them as individuals as best you can, and modeling what it means to be a person of hope, goodwill, and thoughtful inquiry, and to do this all while being oneself. It has always helped me to have a spiritual practice, something to keep me aware and in touch with the larger cycles and rhythms of nature, in touch on a regular basis with my soul. In the days of the early church, the first ministers were chosen from among the church's members. But these early churches were ecstatic congregations. The Protestant reformers of the 17th century tried to recreate the zeal and sense of community they believed animated the early church, but things were more formalized. Those who felt a knack for ministry first pursued an education and then sought a call. 
as my mentor, the Reverend Paul Sawyer, regularly reminded me through our, throughout our years of collegial friendship, one is wise throughout his or her career to keep sourcing the spirit. Otherwise, when you get clobbered emotionally or politically, you dry up. And getting beat up or feeling beat up will happen. Indeed, is bound to happen. Most ministers, whether they have a spiritual practice or not, get clobbered sometime along the way. Everybody, in fact, gets clobbered. But you stick with it despite all that. That is what it means to feel and be called. At district assembly a few years ago, I heard the Reverend Mark Morrison read speak on growing up and later working as an African-American UU minister. What clobbered Mark was the years of repressed, unexpressed grief that comes with the ministry. People you love moving away, people you love dying, having to move from town to town and saying yet another goodbye. It all added up until Mark finally left the ministry overwhelmed by sadness. A lot of self-care, sourcing the spirit, enabled him to come back into his strength, but it was hard. Paris ministry is hard. I recall being recently ordained and arriving at my first church as the minister. One of the things that clobbered me in those days was how, despite my eagerness, no one took me all that seriously. Some did. Lillian Moorhead, Grace Brick, David Lyon, and I'll be forever grateful for their kindness in treating me as a minister by asking me to address with them their pastoral concerns. Gray hair or not, for years I wished I had some in here, I was their minister, and they reached out to me in just that way. Recently, I reread the first four sermons I gave back in 1976. And actually, I was more impressed than I thought I was going to be. Those sermons were not that bad. Too long, certainly, and too left-lobed, but okay. Not unlike most ministers recently out of seminary. Try keeping all this in mind as you contemplate calling a minister next spring. Do not waste time worrying whether or not the candidate that the search committee nominates is the perfect candidate who will effortlessly pick up the reins. Imagine instead, creatively visualize, someone with the capacity to grow into the job, someone with whom you can grow together. The seven-member search committee that you will all vote on will spend the next nine months reviewing and interviewing widely culminating in their decision to ask one of my colleagues to be ESUC's candidate for your sixth settled lead minister. Members should vote their conscience, what you really feel individually about the person being presented, and in so doing, you'll be affirming the Unitarian value of freedom of conscience. But I strongly encourage you to add some universalism to your calculus by voting your hope. For these ultimately constitute the authority out of which ministers and lay people speak and about which our movement is centered, our consciences and our hope. May it be so.
Amen. Namaste.